Today, we're beginning a series uh, through August on the life of Elijah, the beloved prophet Elijah. And you know, if there was a Mount Rushmore of prophets, Elijah would be on it. No question about it. Elijah, even his name, Yahweh is my God. It's Elijah. Or my God is Jehovah. We look at the life of Elijah and, and we think and we just in, in awe of his confidence, of his courage, of his brashness. And we look at the miracles that he performed in his life and we say, wow, what, a, what an amazing individual. And then we look at his message. His message was to call the nation of Israel back to God, their father, the God who brought him out of Egypt, the God who sustained him and made him a nation. And his call was to bring them back. And even when he was done, when his, when his life was, well, when his ministry was over and he passed the torch on to Elisha, even then he just didn't walk off into the sunset and collect his social security and his prophet's pension. He didn't do any of that. Second Kings chapter two tells us that when Elijah passed the torch to Elisha, and he was done with his ministry, that God came in a, in a chariot of fire and horses of fire, and with a whirlwind, swept him up into heaven. Now, that's a way to go. <laughs> a number of years ago, the now deceased uh, songwriter Rich Mullins wrote a song, says, when I go, I want to go out like Elijah. And I says, yeah. That sounds good to me. I can just see it. I can just see it. Woohoo! look at me. <laughs> I'm going to take him off. And, and yeah, when I go, I want to go out like Elijah. So, so here is Elijah. He's this, this mega, mega prophet, a rock star of his time, or at least in many of our minds. But James, the brother of, John, brother of Jesus, reminds us in James 5, 17, Elijah was a man just like us. He, through all this rock star attributes that he might have, he reminds us that Elijah, down deep, is no different than you and me. The same fears, the same challenges. He's a man just like us. He puts his pants on, one leg at a time, just like you and me. And so as we look over these next few weeks and think about Elijah, think about this marvelous man who does some tremendous things, but he's a man like you and me, called by God to do some incredible things. And he did some incredible things, but a man just like you and me. Maybe some background to the story and the stories over the next few weeks would be good to really understand the historical context of how Elijah steps in to the life of Israel. If you might remember, for 120 years almost, Israel had been one nation governed by one king. Now, it was three different kings, but it was one king at a time. It was Saul, and then it was David, and then it was Solomon. And they had some heady times. They were expanding, and things were going well, and especially as they were getting into the early years of Solomon's reign. Remember, Solomon asked for wisdom, and, and things were, you know, the, the kingdom was good, and God was being worshiped. And then Solomon started to slip away from God. He started to bring idols from other nations, mostly because of his eye for women. You know, if Solomon 
had one wife cook a meal a day. I was thinking about this this morning. If he had a wife cook a meal a day, that wife wouldn't have to cook again for almost two years. He had so many wives. <laughs> he had 700 wives, we're told, 300 concubines. But what they did is they turned his heart from God. And he turned the nation from God. And so they began to worship idols. And God says, because you are worshiping idols, I'm going to divide the kingdom. I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. And so we are in a time now of not one Israel, of one, not one nation of God's people, but two nations, Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Israel was 10 nations. Judah was two nations. God's people who were meant to be unified, God's people who were meant to be one, were now two. And so Elijah, about 100, no, about 70, 80 years actually, after the split of these nations, steps into the northern country, Israel, with a message for its king. Chapter 16 provides a little bit of more of the background for Elijah's ministry. Chapter 1630, Ahab is king, says this. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. Ahab was the seventh king since Solomon in the northern country. He was the seventh king of Israel. And the Bible tells us, how would you like this said about you? Maybe in your place of work. Wow, he's done more evil than anybody that ever been here before. <laughs> That's what the Bible says here about Ahab. It's about this time, or actually it probably started almost a year ago, when they start to talk about the legacy that a president leaves. And for the last year, I've been hearing, you know, what is going to be President Obama's legacy? Is it going to be the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare? Or might, what else might that be? But he's going to have a legacy. It was early June I was hearing this year, what's LeBron's legacy going to be? And it was, is his legacy going to be a failure if he loses the championship again? Glad to say that on June 20th, I was listening to the Mike and Mike show on ESPN in the morning, and Mike Greenberg says, LeBron's legacy is cemented because of the championship. What kind of legacy? What kind of legacy do we leave? Ahab's legacy. You talk about being cemented when it's printed in the word of God. <laughs> when it's printed in the word of God, it is cemented. It says, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any before him. And what is sad about this is Israel, the northern kingdom, in their whole time had 19 kings. Not one of them was godly. These seven individ six individuals that had come before him were not good kings. They were kings that brought idol worship. They were kings that were evil and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And he says, Ahab is so bad, he's worse than them all. How bad is that? And then he goes on to say in verse 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Jeroboam was the first king after the kingdom was split. And the Bible said about Jeroboam, he caused Israel to sin. 
That's how bad Jeroboam was. He said, Ahab considered Jeroboam's sins as trivial. Ah, those are just little things. Let me really show you how to sin. But he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. So not only was it trivial to commit sin, but he brought sin and he brought idol worship. He brought the worship of Baal into Israel just because. Probably wanted to marry some queen, some lady, to, to bring peace between him and other nations. But he opened up Israel to Baal worship. He started to serve Baal and decided to worship him. The writer just keeps piling on, piling on. He goes on to say in 1 Kings 32, 16, 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. And 33 says, Ahab also made an Asherah pole. And listen to this. He did more to arouse the anger of God, of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. Are you getting the picture? Not a good guy, bad times. Chuck Swindoll in his book on Elijah made this statement. In spiritual terms, this was a time of complete despair. The chasm between God and his people had reached its widest breath. Think about that a second. Of all the history of the Israelite nation, the time under the judges and then the time under the kings and David and Saul and Solomon. And he said the chasm between God and his people was now at its widest point. It was dark times. And then in verse 17, one, marches a guy. If you have your Bibles, we're in 1 Kings, if you haven't figured out, chapter 17, verse 1. In the midst of these dark times, in the midst of everything that's going on in Israel right now, in Mark's marches, Elijah, verse 17, 1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel leaves, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. And then he left. <laughs> How about that? My first question when I look at that is who is this guy? We really don't know. There are no introductions given. Most times when you see prophets, and we just got, had a fun time this past, uh, it was last fall studying the minor prophets in our growth group class, and we went through those last 12 books of the Bible, but almost every prophet said, I'm prophet so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so, until you get to where somebody they really know. They're trying to get back to the, who, the, who the person is that they, serve, that, they, that they come from that you know. What are my credentials? Then maybe they'll throw that out. I'm a prophet. I'm a priest. Whatever I am. None of that. Re but remember what James told us? He's what? A man like us. Background's not important. It really doesn't matter where I come from. All as I know is I've come here with a message, Mr. King. I've come here with a message. What are my qualifications? It doesn't make any difference. I'm a guy and I have a message. We're told that he's a Tishbite from Tishbe 
wherever that is, in Gilead. In fact, we have that map back here of the divided kingdom, and we have Gilead circled, because you can see Gilead is east of the Jordan River, but that's a, that's a big territory. We really don't know, not only do we not know who he came from, we really don't know where he came from, because no one's ever heard of Tishbe or Tishbites or anything like that. Now, I'm not saying fish bites, I'm saying Tishbites. So somewhere over there, this guy shows up. Gilead is a mountainous area. It's rough. It's some difficult terrain. So he's probably a guy that's used to being kind of a mountain man. In fact, if you look uh, later in Kings, you see him described. He's described as having, depending on the, depending how the words are translated, he's either hairy with a leather belt or he's wearing hairy clothes with a leather belt. Hopefully he's wearing hairy clothes with a leather belt. It's probably camel hair or sheepskin, but he's just, he's just a rough guy. Probably grown up in some of these areas. He, he's maybe not, maybe not as educated as some of those others that would come from the cities. Uh, in fact, I think James tells us, if I remember right, that he's a guy just like you and me, right? Just a guy, just a guy. A guy, a Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead. So that's who. What about the what? Let's go back to that first, first, first verse again. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said, Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wow. It doesn't even say that the Lord told him to say this. I don't know, maybe he just looked around and maybe he remembered out of Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, the Lord says this, be careful or you'll be enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord has given you. He just didn't say it there. He said it other places in Deuteronomy. He said other places in Leviticus. He said, if you follow other gods, I'm going to shut the heavens up. There will be no rain. Maybe Elijah was just silly enough to believe that God meant what he said. And he walked in there and he says, you know, I see this idol worship. I tell you what, it's not going to rain because God said it's not going to rain until I say so. And he walks out. That takes guts. That takes courage. That takes a little bit of brashness. That takes a little bit of being led by the Spirit. Back to the scripture, verse 2 of 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook I have directed from the ravens to supply you with food there. He wasn't giving a message that was going to make him popular. God says, you better get out of here. Verses five and six. So he did what the Lord told him. He went to the Kareth Ravine, east of the Jordan, stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. What a, what a wonderful story. Did you notice those words? My favorite words, obedience. He did what the Lord told him to do. He did what the Lord told him to do. He's a man like us, but he did what the Lord told him to do. It's kind of like when they were in 
Israel coming out of Egypt in the, in the wilderness. God brought manna. Do you remember that? In the same way, he's going to take care of his servant. He's going to watch over him. And he's going to provide for him. And he says, go away. And I wonder in this situation, in this scenario, why would God, why would God say, go away? Wouldn't you want your prophet in the midst of the action? Wouldn't you want him there to stir people up? So after the first week and then the first month and then the second or third month it didn't rain, he would be there to say, <coughs> remember what I said? Wouldn't God want him there? And as I think about it, there, there are probably two reasons, at least two reasons, why God would send his prophet into hiding. First one would be for protection. For protection. 1 Kings 18.4 says that Jezebel was killing off the prophets. It's a pretty good reason to get out of town. <laughs> in fact, later in 18.10, we are told that there was not a nation or a kingdom where Ahab had not sent his men to look for Elijah. His life was certainly in danger. Ahab considered him a troubler of Israel. So I think certainly God's sending for protection, but we find out that kind of like Job, we learn in chapter one, he had a hedge of protection around him. God had sent him where he wouldn't be found. God would hide the eyes of Ahab and his men so he wouldn't be found. I think that's one reason. But probably the bigger reason, I believe, he, he was sent was for preparation. Preparation. This is only the introduction to the story. God has a lot more for Elijah to do. We don't know how long he was there, but we believe it's definitely more than weeks, more than months even. He could have been there a year, being fed by ravens and drinking from the brook. What do you do when you're alone, when you're frustrated, when you're hurting, when you're wondering what God's gonna do next, when you don't know what your future holds, what would, what would you do in that situation? I've tried to place myself in Elijah's shoes this week or his sandals. What would I do if God said, Steve, go and hide? What would you do if he says, go and hide and, and don't take anything with you. Don't, you don't even have to worry about food. Don't take your iPad. Don't take your cell phone. Maybe you don't even take your Bible. Go with what you got up here. <laughs> How scary would that be? I think Elijah had some thinking to do, don't you? I think he had to learn to slow down. I think he spent some time thinking what was important in life. He had to learn some patience. I think he probably had to learn to draw close to God, to meditate. He probably thought about all those other folks in the Old Testament who were sent, in time, sent away in times of preparation. Abraham, sent away from his homeland. Moses, sent away from Egypt. Joseph, sent to prison. David, out in the caves, running for his life. Thinking, God, what do you have in store? I think he learned to pray, too. 
You know what else James 5.17 says? It says, Elijah was a man like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. Earnestly is with serious, intense, deep prayers. If you'd gone before the king and said, hey, king, it's not going to rain, would you be praying to God, please make it not rain? <laughs> I think I would be. You learn to pray and you learn to draw close to God. This morning, I've, I brought a friend with me. His name's Tom. Um, last name is um, Fritz. We're good friends. <laughs> Tom and I go back years and years. Tom, would you come on up? Tom is from my home church in Damascus. Um, we were t- I don't know how long ago it was. We were talking this morning, maybe 15, I don't some right around there. I had the unfortunate privilege, it's not a privilege, of telling Tom, you need to go to the desert for a while. Um, if you know our pastor, Jim, youth, youth pastor, Tom has that kind of heart and energy, especially for youth. And he was leading a dynamic junior high ministry. The kids loved him. He drove the parents nuts. <laughs> Tom was going through some things in his life, including the divorce at that time that was not of his des- desire. And um, some reason, I don't know if I was an elder or something at the time, but I got elected to go talk to Tom and say, Tom, let's step down for a while. And quite honestly, I think Tom and I both thought that was probably going to be maybe a few months as he worked through some things. Um, it wasn't. Uh, I want Tom to share a little bit of your testimony. All right. Love you, brother. Love you, brother. Uh, I am going to introduce myself to you this morning as I would at a ministry that we have our, at our church called Celebrate Recovery. So, hey, family. My name is Tom. I am a grateful believer in Jesus Christ. I struggle with drugs alcohol, and a resentment issue. And that's where you say, hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. (laughs) (laughs) Just had to get out there. (laughs) As Steve mentioned, uh, and I'm going to be reading because this is what we do at Celebrate Recovery. As Steve mentioned, I got through a very painful and difficult divorce. And when that was asked to step down from leadership to be ministered to and then get back into leadership quickly. In that period of my life, I found myself truly dead center in the wilderness. I admittedly gone deeper in my wandering than I realized. I even found myself in and out of the bars again. But I never really completely turned my back on God. I knew he was real. I had experienced him greatly. But at this time of wandering in the wilderness, I had spent five years every day of my life in the park reading God's word and after two years I wasn't in the bars anymore but the last three years in the park were pretty horrible for me I would read scripture my bible from anywhere from one to about eight hours a day I was broken and I was not understanding how God was preparing me for something bigger I had read Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren, 
but I'll come back to that in a bit. I continually and boldly ask God why he left me broken for so long, but there was no answer that came to me. And that sometime at the end of my five years in the park was coming together and God gave me the most amazing wife, woman of faith that I've ever met in my life. And through her, God did a complete healing in my life. We have two beautiful children, daughters. Carter is six and Kennedy is four. And then at that time, my pastor asked me to help start and be a leader in a Christian recovery ministry called Celebrate Recovery. And also a couple weeks after that, my wife and I were asked to lead a young married connect group using purpose-driven life. Um, remember I said I was gonna come back to that. My wife, um, er, my wife years earlier had read Purpose Driven Life as I did and we would study whom, whomsoever book was closest. And, but truthfully, her book was more fun. She's a teacher. She highlighted, uh, sticky-noted, color-coded, <laughs> everything in the book. <laughs> but one night, while studying, she was reading out of my copy of, of Purpose Driven Life, and she started crying. She skimmed through the book and said, in this entire book, Tom, you only underline two words, and you want to know what they are. And she said, celebrate recovery. We both started to cry and knew that my involvement with Celebrate Recovery was truly a divine appointment. I served on the team as an assimilation coach, an encourager coach, and as I moved others into leadership into that ministry, uh, today, I'm a mentor in that ministry, an open share group leader, a step study leader, and I sponsor several men. And, in, and I've literally walked with hundreds of guys in the last almost eight years. And at one time, I still ask God why I was left so deep in the wilderness and so broken. And his answer came, finally, and he said, I left you broken so that you would have a heart for others that are broken. And as my life verse says, 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4 states, Praise be to the glory, praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with a comfort we ourselves have received from God. The truth is, because of that, I would not trade one second of those five years for anything. God was preparing me for what he has placed in front of me. I spent a lot of time in my life wandering, but I've been walking with the Lord for some time now. And his love is truly amazing. I still fully can't comprehend it. But I am brought to a place where I can tell you what I do know that he is everything good from A to Z. He's all good, he's beautiful, he's caring, deliverer, everlasting, faithful, giving, healer, immense, joy giver. Come on, help a brother out here a little <laughs> bit. He's kind, he's loving, he's a miracle maker, never ending, omnipotent, he's patient, quencher of Amen. guilt, resourceful, 
sovereign, true, uplifting, victorious, wonderful, extra special. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow, he's zealous after our hearts. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is Jesus Christ, my true one and only Amen. higher power. Today is a special treasure in my heart uh, to be with Steve and Sheila, good friends. I get to be here with all of you. And next, uh, a young sponsoree of mine is celebrating one year of marriage today. Um, and I had the blessing to be the best man in his wedding. And this afternoon, I have three guys in my uh, step study group that are going to be baptized at our church picnic. Um, God is good. Amen. God is so good. I love the Lord, and I love all of you. And thank you for letting me share with you today. Trying to make that real story. <laughs> Tom and I's favorite phrase down through the years has been, "We got a big God," and we see God working in Tom's life. I, I don't know where you find yourself this morning. Maybe you say, I'm in the middle of that five-year period. I'm, I'm, I hope it's not five years. <laughs> you know, maybe it's only two. Maybe it's only, maybe, Lord, maybe only a few months. You know what? Elijah didn't know how long this was going to be. He said it's going to be years just before it rains. And God said, go. And he was faithful. I think during this time, kind of like God was doing with Tom, God was in the process of transforming Elijah from Elijah the Tishbite into Elijah the man of God. We're introduced to him in verse 1 of chapter 17 as Elijah the Tishbite. You peek ahead to verse 24 where we'll be next week. The lady looks at him and says, wow, you're a man of God. I don't know where you struggle this morning. I don't know what you're doing. If you're in that lonely place, if you're in that dark place, if you're in that place of despair, I believe God is reaching out to you this morning. James 5 and 17 has an ending to it. It says this, Elijah was a man just like us. He played, prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And get, get this, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Even in the time of despair, even in a time of loneliness, even in a time of being separated, God was working. I read somewhere this week as I was looking through things that, that you know, Elijah really had no, did not see God working at all during this time because he was, he was alone and he was, he was separated from the rest of the people. But I don't think that's true. I think every time he woke up and saw no cloud in the sky, <laughs> he said, God's working. Every time he prayed, he said, Lord, please don't let it rain. Not only is my reputation at stake, but so is yours. And it didn't rain. I think he said, God's working. He knew God was faithful. God was faithful to him as he was faithful to God in obedience to what he called him to be. God is looking for faithful people, people who will walk wherever he says. When he says leave, it says he left. If God says go, we go. If God says stay, we stay. If God says serve, we serve. That's what he's looking for. And, and if he has to work on me, say, Lord, work on me. 
Prefer it not be five years in the wilderness, but okay, if it has to be, whatever, whatever your will is. Would you stand together with me? We, uh, we sang that chorus, or actually the old hymn, to close. Great is thy faithfulness. God will not leave you alone in that dark place. God has a plan. If you're obedient, if you're obedient, God has a plan. Proverbs 2.8 says, He guards the course of the just and He protects the way of the faithful ones. Are you faithful to Him? He's faithful to you. Let's sing this again.
felt alone. Forgive us for not looking to you first. We recognize that you are here with us and you will go with us. You will be with us, Lord. We thank you for your great faithfulness that we can trust in you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.